Good afternoon to you. How are you doing this Tuesday? It's five o'clock, of course it is. It's uh, the 9th of May, 2023. I'm Richie Allen, the BBG. It is wonderful to be with you once again. I have a very special guest for you today, something a bit different. I can't wait to talk to him. I'll tell you more in a moment. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Oh yeah, I'll tell you all about that in a moment. Reach out to me during the program by sending me a message via my app. I have an app, I have an app. It's on Google Play, it's on the App Store. Download it, download it and leave a review for it, please. If you don't want to do that, you can leave a message for me during the program via the website. I say that at the beginning of every show because it's important. And from now, from today, the show, at least when I'm doing a phone-in show, is contactable via WhatsApp. There is a WhatsApp number for the program. For more details, go to richieallen.co.uk. Go to richieallen.co.uk for more details on the WhatsApp thing. You'll be able to call me via WhatsApp. I will be joined this hour by Whitley Streber. Can't wait to speak with Whitley Streber again. He has no recollection of me whatsoever because I'm not that memorable. He doesn't, of course not, but I interviewed him around about 13 years ago. God, my mathematics is terrible. Might have been 14 years ago. When I was working for Talk Radio Europe, he's an amazing man. He's written more than 40 books. Some of his books, his fictional books, went on to be great films, like Wolfen, The Hunger. And he wrote the book that was used... It was called Superstorm. They made the Day After Tomorrow film based on the book. But Whitley is most famous for writing a book called Communion, which he wrote. It was published in 1987. He had experiences in upstate New York in a cabin, which were terrifying and life-changing. He was um, visited by entities or beings that he calls the visitors. He doesn't say what they are, whether they were aliens or, or anything else. He doesn't know. Well, he's open-minded, of course. And he has had an amazing life since then. He's travelled the world. He's written many more books. He has a new book out called Them, where he has a look at the entire phenomenon from the point of view of the visitors and why have they appeared to and abducted in many cases so many hundreds of thousands of people that we know of. So it's a bit different and it's something I like. So I'm looking forward to speaking with Whitley. We'll do that in around about 30 minutes time. I'm sure you'll have something to contribute to that. Do it via the message systems, which I've already outlined. Were you listening? I think you were... Good on you. So that's going to be great. I've been reading them, his latest book, actually, the last couple of days, and it is fascinating. It really is. And he's a very nice man. So let's look forward to that. That's coming up a little bit uh, later this hour, as I've said already. So to the news. Here's some bad news. Unsurprising, but bad news. Nearly 700,000 households in the UK couldn't pay Rent or mortgage last month failed to meet a rent or mortgage payment. And that's according to data, which is it, which has been issued by uh, which, you know, the consumer magazine, which the consumer body. 
and it has been endorsed by basically by mortgage holders and private renters. They've said, yeah, this is going on. And this has risen year on year for the last couple of years. It's getting worse. 700,000 households couldn't pay the rent, couldn't pay the mortgage. This is the cost of living crisis. Overall, an estimated 2 million households missed or defaulted on at least one mortgage rent loan, credit card or bill payment in April, according to which latest monthly consumer insight tracker. That's which with a question mark after it. That's the magazine. So they polled over 2,000 people. So that's about 7.3% of the population, uh, which says that's in line with the level this time last year, but it's higher than in April 2021 and April 2020. The squeeze is getting worse for many people. I live in Salford. I talk to a lot of people and they're feeling it here. I'm sure you're feeling it. I'll leave that one there. We might come back to that later on in the week. Now, the Education Secretary is a woman called Gillian Keegan. She has suggested that artificial intelligence, or AI, could be used to mark the work of pupils or even to draw up lesson plans, freeing teachers to, well, spend more time teaching. Doug, this out of the Times today, Keegan said this would be a transformative change. AI could bring about this transformative change, and she likened it to innovations of the past, such as electronic calculators and Google. She made these comments at the Education World Forum in London. You see, this is where I lament not having producers. I lament because I can't do this work alone. I would love to know what the Education World Forum is, I would like to know the names of the men and women behind it, and I would like to know the names of those who fund such organisations, but I just don't have the time. Maybe in the future, maybe, maybe Santa Claus will bring me a producer this coming winter. Maybe, maybe he won't. So there you are. I might be misgendering Santa Claus, maybe, I don't know. So the Education World Forum, that's where she was. She says AI could have the power to transform a teacher's day-to-day work. It can take the heavy lifting out of compiling lesson plans and marking, enabling teachers to do the one thing that AI cannot, and that's teach up close and personal at the front of the classroom. Gillian Keegan must think that we're all stupid, because I would imagine they are developing programmes, artificial intelligence programmes, to to take the place of teachers and everybody else in the world, in the workplace. So she says um, this could be used to radically reduce the amount of time teachers spend marking. It's an assistive technology which will improve access to education. Now, who was speaking about this overnight? Well, none other than the co-founder of Apple, Steve Wozniak, or Wozniak. I don't know how you pronounce it, Wozniak. He has warned that artificial intelligence could make scams and misinformation harder for us all to spot. Wozniak said he fears the technology will be, quote, harnessed by bad actors. He has been speaking to the BBC's technology editor. The trouble is AI is so intelligent, it's open to the bad players, the ones that want to trick you about who they are. Are they trying to sell you something you don't want? Are they trying to trick you to get your, your account information? You know, we see malicious intrusions all the time, both personal and companies that get intruded and millions of, of accounts get you know exposed and all that. That's only going to, I would only expect that to become worse of a problem than it is now. 
do you think regulators are going to get it right this time, you know, nearer to the beginning? Oh, I do not think so at all. Um, I think the, the forces that drive for money compared to the forces that drive for caring about us, for love, for feelings, for emotions, uh, I think the forces that drive for money um, uh, usually win out. You know, it's sort of sad. If you were in charge of regulating AI, what would you do first? Anything's published with AI, you as a reader should be told this was created by AI and I'm posting it to you. And the person who posted and even the, um, the, the massive global broadcasting media that posted should have some responsibility. Do you think it's just a trend, AI? Or do you think it's going to be the big game changer? I think it's going to get um, better in what it's able to do. And hopefully, 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 we finally, you know, agree on, you know, regulations that um, basically say you do the bad things, you know, you're out of line, you'll be punished and this and that, especially to the big companies that feel they can kind of get away with anything. Yeah. She asks him next, Steve Wozniak, the Apple co-founder, she asks him, the BBC tech editor, about online harms. The, the bill, the online harms bill going through the House of Lords at the moment here in the UK. She specifically asks him if the police should be allowed, should be given access to people's WhatsApp communications, which are end-to-end encrypted, aren't they? If the police suspect somebody of doing something, shouldn't they be entitled to have a look at their WhatsApp messages? Here's the question. You'll hear Steve Wozniak. We've got legislation coming here in the UK, which is uh, calling on uh, companies to be able to access messages that are end-to-end encrypted um, if law enforcement wants to or needs to. What, what do you think about that? That's a hard one. I don't always have the same response, but pretty much I'm on the side that we should be able to encrypt. I should be able to whisper in a friend's ear without anyone knowing what I'm saying. I should be able to talk to my wife without anyone knowing what I'm saying. And now it's all known. And I don't, I don't think that that's right as human beings. You know, what should we be? The other side is there are a lot of crimes possible on us now. And those crimes are used on the internet to kind of hide data. When you want to hide, it's usually because you feel that what you're doing is wrong. So um, I don't know. The trouble is, do you trust any large entity like a government to have a back door so that everything you're sending in email and all that is uh, visible. I don't know if the government's who we want to trust. Yeah, neither would I. The irony seems to be lost on Steve Wozniak, that he is one of many who made such a thing possible. You know, this level of intrusion on our lives by technology. Steve has played a big part in that. And his old mate Steve Jobs and we could be here all day naming these geeks. But maybe they didn't know what they were doing. Maybe they did. Lots of messages coming in. Hey, by the way, there is a wonderful podcast about artificial intelligence. It has been put together by Nick Ripley and Paul Ripley, the brothers Ripley. They were on this program last Thursday talking about it. It was an excellent conversation. I just sat back and listened. It was brilliant about AI, where it came from, where it's going. It is really good. The future was yesterday. You'll get it on Spotify. You'll get it on iTunes and anywhere else you can get a podcast. I recommend it. You know who Paul Ripley is, of course. He's my pal. He's my friend. And he's my engineer. How are you doing, Paul, if you're listening? Paul had to go to the dentist today to have a tooth pulled out. Holy Jesus. I can't think of anything worse, to be honest. 
I can't think of anything worse. I'd rather go on a date with a tranny. Let's move right on and read some of your messages. Mimi says, they think we are daft. David Icke was right. Totalitarian tiptoe. Small, slow baby steps. But we are watching and we never forget. They said horsey Camilla could never be queen. Then they called her consort. And now look at her prancing around in Diana's shoes. We see them, says Mimi. Is she wearing Diana's real shoes? Her actual shoes? I'd imagine Camilla's about a size 12, is she? Proper big man, Camilla. Is she? Misgendering Camilla there. Can't imagine her fitting in. Diana would have been a size four. I've got the Quentin Tarantino foot fetish. I know a lot about this kind of stuff. King of says, Richie, big love from Wigan. Sunny Wigan down the road. Um, just down the road from BBG Towers. Long time listener, only recently commenting. Thank you, King of. Good to hear from you. Good evening, Gail. Good evening to Gaz, who says, Richie, I paid the rent and that's it. I cannot afford to pay the bills, so I don't. Food comes First, Gaz, I'm sorry to hear that, pal. And I really am sorry to hear it. We're lucky enough. Us, we don't have a mortgage. We're very lucky. We don't have children. That's an awful thing to say because I think we would have liked to have had children. But um, our outgoings are fairly minimal. So even though our electricity and gas bills are ridiculous, we're, we're, we're getting by with it. You know, we're not rolling in money or anything like that. But we're not struggling like that. Maybe it'll be us next year struggling. I don't know. But if you are struggling, like as my heart goes out to you because I used to be there. Absolute abject poverty. I've experienced it, like real poverty. Uh, expecting to be kicked out because you can't make the rent poverty. I've been there. And so is my missus. So I know that stress. That is unbelievable stress. That makes you ill, that sort of stress. So Gaz, absolutely put food on the table and tell the creditors to give you a break as long as you know, they can give you a break. It's not easy, pal. So um, that's upset me a bit there. But I speak to people around here. I speak to people on the dog walks and I can see the pressure they're under. I can see it. Um, hi to Anton Grace. Thank you very much for your compliments about the show and about the app. I really appreciate that. Hi to Paulie Woolnats. Hi, Paulie. Hi to Terry. Greetings from Limerick, he says. Hi, Terry. Hi, Keen. Hi, Keen. How are you? Isabel um, found my comment about the tranny funny. By the way, um, if I offended anybody, don't be offended. There's a big difference between a man who is fully intact, wearing a wig and a dress. A huge difference between a man in a dress and a transsexual woman. A huge difference. So I don't refer to transsexual women when I say that. I refer to men in dresses. There's an awful story. I saw the video on, on Twitter the other day of that, of that Starbucks in Southampton, I think, where a woman is being screamed at by a tranny employee, roared at for being transphobic, and uh, eventually the trans person, and again, this is gibberish. I hate to use this terminology. It is gibberish. The trans person screams at the woman in the shop, tells her to get out, and then attacks somebody who's filming it outside the tranny wars that this 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 era won't be known as the culture wars no no it'll be known as the tranny wars we'll be having conversations in beer gardens please god when we get rid of the tyrannical elites years to come you'll be getting me my third double bacardi of the hour i'll have just gotten around in myself and you'll say do you remember the tranny wars back in the in the noughties and the 2020s do you remember the tranny wars they were gas altogether. Gas, they were. They were gas. Yeah, do check out The Future Was Yesterday. Nick Ripley and Paul Ripley. Really, really interesting on the AI 
the story, where it came from, what it is, where it's going, and what we should be looking out for. Very good. Okie doke. Okie doke. Let's get away from the controversy. This is important. Ofcom is the broadcast regulator here in the UK. It is responsible for keeping broadcasters in check. Ofcom, it's probably too, it'll take me too long to explain the real nuts and bolts of Ofcom. But it has always, long before COVID, long before this decade, it has always been primarily concerned with harm. You know, does broadcasting and broadcasters, do they have the capacity to cause harm to those watching? And there's many facets, many tenets to this, so I won't get into it. Anyway, it has ruled that GB News and a programme that was presented by Mark Stein, I think it's pronounced Stein, not Steen, Stein, um, did break Ofcom rules, a claim that the COVID-19 vaccine programme amounted to, quote, mass murder, has broken Ofcom rules, says Ofcom the regulator. This claim was made by Naomi Wolf, a reporter, a journalist and an author, on a programme hosted by Stein in October of last year. Ofcom received over 400 complaints about it. It has now asked GB News to come along, tail between your legs, to a meeting on the matter. So a producer or an editor or a manager from GB News will go to Ofcom in London and sit down and get a slap on the wrist. GB News said, yes, we accept it and we welcome the opportunity to meet with the watchdog. Ofcom found that the broadcaster did not do enough to protect viewers from potentially harmful content. Right? They were also found in breach of this same rule in April of last year. Uh, Wolf was interviewed about the rollout of the COVID jabs during Stein's programme. She claimed the programme, the jab programme, amounted to, quote, mass murder and compared it to the actions of doctors in pre-Nazi Germany. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Ofcom says her claims amounted, this is a quote, to the promotion of a serious unchallenged conspiracy theory which was presented with authority. Now Mark Stein is not much of a presenter. In that ruling there, Ofcom is absolutely bang on the money. I saw the interview. Stein's job is to be the devil's advocate. He should have challenged her. You've heard me challenge doctors in the past when they said that the jabs are no good and they do harm. I've challenged them. I've said to them, but hang on a second. This doctor says this. Why should we believe you? It isn't very difficult. But Mark Stein isn't a journalist. I don't know what he is, but he didn't challenge her and he should have challenged her. So that in that instance, Ofcom is bang on. Where Ofcom is wrong, is where it says, um, where I believe it's wrong, is Ofcom says these claims have the potential to impact on viewers' decisions about their health and were therefore potentially harmful. Now that's where, what I take umbrage with, the idea that people like you and me are stupid people and that we believe everything we hear from people like Mark Stein and Naomi Wolf and that we don't have the capacity to think critically for ourselves and say to each other, well, hang on a second, didn't Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Officer of England, didn't Jonathan Van Tam, his deputy, say these jabs are perfectly legitimate and perfectly safe? Didn't June Rain at the MHRA, didn't the government say the jabs are safe? You see... Now, I don't believe the jabs are safe. You know that. Don't panic. I haven't changed my mind. 
But in that instance, I would take umbrage with Ofcom's decision. I would say the cheek of you to say that they should be held liable for potentially harming the viewers. And this is where it's all going now. In the near future, the media can't say this. You might harm a tranny. You might harm a person of colour because they won't like what you're saying. This is where it goes, you see. So he should have challenged Naomi Wolf while allowing her to speak, but he didn't. And here's the question, right, that uh, I would hope that some of our listeners to the Richie Allen show might have been asking when they were watching Mark Stein, what the hell was Naomi Wolf doing on the programme to talk about the safety or efficacy of vaccines? That's one that might trigger you now. You might get triggered. You might start shouting at me. Don't think about it. Why did he or his producer invite Naomi Wolf on? Now, I've never watched Mark Stein apart from watching that interview, right? Because I wanted to see it. But I didn't spend any other time watching him. Um, Why, when you wanted to talk about the safety or efficacy of COVID jabs, why didn't he reach out to Sucharit or Sucharit Bakti in Germany? Why didn't he reach out to Dolores Kahl and others? Because it's not so easy for Ofcom to challenge the authority of statements made by qualified men and women, is it now? Ask yourself why Naomi Wolf was given the chair to decry the jabs. Very strange. But people don't ask questions anymore. They, they believe the jabs are damaging, which, which they are, hurting a lot of people. And they just, they're just happy for anybody to say so. What do you watch every I watch programmes where people say the jabs are terrible. Why do you do that? You know the jabs are terrible. I, I just like hearing my opinions fed back to me 24 hours a day. But you've got to think, 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 think. Why ask Naomi Wolf to come and comment on, 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 on a vaccine? She's not a vaccinologist or a scientist. Why didn't they get on some proper doctors? I mean, we had them on this programme. Scientists who said the jabs and mRNA technology could be very harmful. Ask yourself that, dear listener, before you cry in your tear soup for Mark Stein. You know? Yeah. I mean, I've been a producer and a presenter and an editor and an assistant programme controller of talk radio for many, many, many years. I would have said, listen, you don't want to get Naomi Wolf on to say the jabs are shit. Why is that? Well, what does she know about it? Aren't there doctors saying the jabs are shit? Yes, there are. Well, let's get some of them then. They have more credibility. It's like somebody asking me, Richie, would you come on the, uh, the programme? Why? Uh, to, to tell us why, to tell us that the jabs are shit. Well, I think the jabs are shit, but I have no authority. You know, nobody's going to believe me, kind of a thing. Anyway, 22 and a half minutes past the hour. This is the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live from BBG Towers here in Salford. Good evening, Wendy. Good evening to Joanna. Who says, Richie, size 12 is not big. It is big. Size 12 is a Sasquatch for a woman. It's Bigfoot. If my missus had size 12 feet, we wouldn't be together. And she knows that. She'd have had to have an operation. She'd have had to have a foot reduction operation. I wouldn't put up with her. Size 12 is massive for a woman. I'm guessing that um, Joanna has size 12 feet. Rob says, how many of the 400 complainants are still alive? That's a good question. (laughs) That is a good question. Let's hope they're all still alive. Steve says, my wife was abducted by aliens in 2010. The little bastards brought her back after 15 minutes. Good man. The sarcastic window cleaner. Good evening. Good evening to Mark in Warrington, who says, Ofcom have nothing to say about politicians interviewing politicians, do they? It's a joke institution. That's a very well-made point. Absolutely. John says, Richie, I'm a fan. Don't be a fan, John. 
but you are selective with your challenging of guests, especially if it's someone you like, you never challenge them. That's nonsense, John. And you know it's nonsense. The people I like the most are the people who I interrupt the most and ask them for proof or I put to them a point of view expressed by somebody else who would disagree with them. Don't be churlish, John. I challenge my guests all the time. Julia says, Wolf assembled hundreds of scientists, doctors, etc. Great, that's great, Julia. That's fantastic, right? And she wrote about that. That's lovely. She assembled these people, but she is not an expert in the field of vaccinology, if such a field exists, or in the field of virology. She's not. She might be a very nice woman. She might be a very intelligent woman. But if you are going to get somebody to say that the jabs are harmful, you must get somebody with a few letters after their name. I know that sounds counterintuitive. I can't believe you'd say that, Richie. You're supposed to be alternative. I am. But you have to cover your arse. Naomi Wolf is just like any layman or laywoman. I've interviewed hundreds of scientists over the years. I've interviewed dozens of doctors who said the jabs are deadly. But you wouldn't invite me onto your programme to talk about what the jabs are doing to people. I have no right. None. All I can say is, well, I heard this and I, and I heard that. Wolf was speaking as if she was an expert on Stein's programme. And that's where Stein should have said, well, look, I have a bit of sympathy with what you're saying now and our listeners are worried about the jabs. But I must point out, Naomi, you're not a doctor, you're not a scientist. It's very simple. This job of, that I do is very, very simple. It's not that I make it look simple. It is simple. David reckons, um, another David, that doctors might have been invited onto GB News, but they might have refused. I doubt it, David. Uh, Dolores Cahill would not turn down an interview with GB News to talk about the jabs, in my opinion. It's just my opinion. Let's not melt down over one another's, one another's opinions. Just my opinion, that's all. Now, this is the Richie Allen Show. I will be joined shortly by Whitley Strieber. Have you read Communion? Did you see the film with Christopher Walken? which uh, was a very good film. I remember watching it in preparation for speaking to Whitley all those years ago in Spain. And uh, I read the book at the time. I was amazed by the book. I was, I was really taken with this idea that a successful fictional author whose star was on the rise, why would you risk it all by writing a book whereby you claimed you were visited by entities or... Or, or, or creatures or greys or whatever. Why would you risk it? And we talked about that the night I spoke to him many years ago in Spain. And uh, I'm convinced, having read his books, having listened to him, having interviewed him, that Whitley Strieber believes what it is he says. You might think otherwise. And you're entitled to think that, of course. We, we won't ignore that. But, uh, and that's what fascinates me about people like that. It's a nice departure from the news. Whitley Strieber will be on the programme in a few minutes' time. It is Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. If there's something you'd like to contribute, do get in touch via the brand. I said it again. The recent, the relatively new app, which you can download Google Play, download on the App Store, or just send me a message via my website, as I said, comment live, top of the menu bar. Now, let me explain something, which um, obviously some of you didn't um, pay attention to um, today. I have put a QR code on the website. I've done that so that you can connect to WhatsApp. I haven't done that so you can send lots of message messages to me, morning, noon and night, whenever you feel like it. Um, that will not be monitored outside of a phone-in programme. Don't send messages or comments to the WhatsApp because nobody is looking at it. 
It's going to be used for phone-ins and phone-ins only. Plenty of other ways to leave me a message. Use the app. Use the website. Don't send a message to the WhatsApp. Don't phone it outside of the programme because nobody will be there. Nobody. It's like that complaints department in the Carlsberg ads years ago. Nobody there. Nobody. Okay, you with me? You with me? Right. Leave the WhatsApp alone until the phone-in happens. And then you can WhatsApp the bejesus out of me. WhatsApp the bejesus out of me. Richie Allen is me. Whitley Strieber joins us in a moment. Uh, the Richie Allen Show is the most listened to independent news radio show on planet Earth. And it is a planet. It's very round. Big roundy thing it is. Very roundy. Ah. This is CeeLo Green. That is CeeLo Green and Bright Lights Big City. 29 minutes to the top of the air. Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live from BBG, BBG Towers even in Salford. Before we welcome Whitley to the programme. Cliff Moore has been in touch. How are you Cliff? And this is interesting. This is on the back of Gaz message. Gaz sent a message. He's struggling like many people are struggling. Gaz, you might want to listen to this. Uh, Cliff says, there is an app called Olio. It's spelled O-L-I-O. Oscar Lima, Indigo, Oscar, O-L-I-O. That distributes food that is free for people to collect, people who are struggling. Best wishes to Gaz and anyone else struggling financially. Look for the app Olio or Olio, O-L-I-O. It's lovely to have a departure, you know, from... um, from the news. And the gentleman we're about to um, chat to now is somebody I met in 2010, I think it was. He has no, and why would he have any recollection of it? I was working for Talk Radio Europe and I was recommended to get in touch with him and I'm so glad that I did. He has written over 40, way over 40 books during a hugely successful career. and um, Fictional books that were turned into massive films, right? Which I mentioned earlier on. But um, we know him because of a book he published in 1987 about encounters that he had in upstate New York at a cabin where he would go with his wife. Visitations and even abductions. An amazing thing, really. And that changed, the book Communion changed the course of his life. There's no doubt about that. He's written many times since on this particular subject. He's travelled around the world, given talks everywhere. He's got a hugely successful podcast and website. I'll give you details of those uh, pretty soon. But he's got a new book out and I'm reading it. I'm 100 pages into it. It's called Them. And it is terrific. I can't recommend it highly enough. So let's talk about it. And welcome to the programme, Mr. Whitley Streber. Whitley, welcome to the show. How are you? Well, I'm glad to be back after 10 years. A long time. You're not going to um, massage my ego and say that you remember. Of course you don't remember. You've done probably a million interviews in your time. But I was really taken, Whitley, at the time when I did a lot of research into you. Um, we we would have um, spoke and we would have taken calls from all over Spain, from expat Spain, English-speaking people. And the thing that kept coming back was this gentleman, you know, fantastic career, writing fictional books that were loved, books that were made into films. Why would this man, I kept coming back to this, why would this man come out with communion? Why would anybody do that to themselves and put their career at risk unless it was something that they really believed happened? And that's, um, 
you know, kind of where um, I was thinking, kind of thinking about today. Do you know what I wanted to ask you first, right? You get asked a million times, I guess, that if you could go back to 87, would you kind of announce what happened to you in a different way because of all the stick, all the vitriol, all the abuse that you took? But I'm not going to ask you that question because I'm reading them. And it seems that back in 1987, you were more concerned, not with the abusers and the critics and, you know, the nasty people in the press, but you were more concerned about how the visitors would receive the book communion. That blew my mind. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, after I wrote the book, first, the, the short answer to why I would do this was, I had no idea that it would be the explosive international uh, book that it was. I, I, when I wrote it, we thought there were maybe 50 people or so, that it was a very rare thing. And I, what had happened to me, this abduction, and I had uh, no, I didn't think, I, UFOs were unimportant to me before that I hadn't thought about things like that since I was a little boy in the 50s when it was all in the it was in the newspapers all the time uh, UFOs flying over Washington DC and this and that and so I was aware of it as a child but not as an adult and I I had when it initially happened to me I had no idea that anything like that could happen or that even that there were these things were flying around the area where I lived which happened to be the center of a big UFO wave at the time. I did not know it. And so I was, by the, when the, I, I decided to write the book, not as a book, but just to write it because a man called uh, Robert Sarbacher, who was a metallurgist, I talked to when I was researching whether or not there was any physical evidence about this, and he, he did offer some. Uh, he said, well, why don't you write down what happened to you? And I thought, you know, it would be an interesting thing to do. And I, so I did write it down and I mentioned it to my literary agent and he said, well, you know, Whitley, that's a fascinating story. And, uh, why don't you send it to me? And so I sent it to him and he said, you know, we can, if you expand this into a whole book and really do a good job on it, we could sell this. And I thought, how, how interesting that would be to find out if anyone else ever, ever had this happen. And I had met a few people who had, but I thought if I put a book out, more people may, may come forward. What I didn't know was, A, the United States government was heavily involved and didn't like the idea of, books like that coming out at all, and B, apparently millions of people had had contact experiences, and C, the media would go bananas, which it did. And, I, you know, I found myself have, being three feet away from the big American TV personality, Larry King in those days, uh, across a table in front of millions of people with him laughing in my face so close to me that I was nearly choked to death by his breath. <laughs> and I, I was, it was an absolute circus. Yeah. And my God, I mean, what, what can you do with a thing like that? I was a humiliated and 
and frankly frightened by this and be ecstatic over the book sales, which were tremendous. I couldn't, I mean, I was delighted and, and it was totally unexpected. And and so many thousands of letters came in, which your late wife Anne, the love of your life, Anne collected and collated these letters, which, which played a big part in your new book, Zem, which we're going to yeah. talk about now in a few minutes as well, which I'm reading. We've got Whitley Strieber on the line. Get, get, get on to um, his website. All the details, we'll give them to you in a few minutes and they'll be on the podcast notes. Uh, you, 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 you want to get on it. You want to get on this book. It really is terrific. Now, um, that's an incredible experience for any human being to go through, that sort of ridicule. Um, you know, you go out in the street, everybody sees Larry King, so you go out in the street and people go, oh, look, that's the crazy guy who thinks he was abducted by aliens. But you got through that. And did the correspondence coming in from people from all over the world, Whitley, did that help in a, in a big way with that kind of ridicule? Did, did that kind of change, you know, the course of all of that? Did you say to yourself, well, to hell with this, this is a real thing. This is happening to people, unconnected people all over the world. Well, yeah. Uh, what happened after the book came out was within weeks, the mail, the postmen were coming with big bags of mail, literally big canvas bags, and pouring them on our living room floor. And it was heaping up and heaping up. I didn't know what to do about it. I said to Anne, what are we going to do? I, we can't possibly read these. We've got to figure out some way to just throw them out without compromising people's privacy because you know their names and addresses are in these letters she said you might not be able to read them Whitley but I can I'm gonna read every single one of them and so I said okay and she got a letter opener and started opening letters and after the first day she'd read probably 50 letters and she said you know I'm gonna to have to have some help I need a secretary and I said well we'll go to manpower which was a secretarial uh, place you could get secretaries and she said no I'll find a secretary in the letters just for sure I feel it'll come up she was like that and uh, not an hour later she comes into my office and puts a letter down on the desk and says this lady's going to be our secretary and I said well it says here she's a singer and an actress <laughs> and says have you ever heard of her I said, no. Well, she said, look at that handwriting. That's a professional's handwriting. She's been trained and was also professionally trained in secretarial work. She's trained secretary. She knows what she's doing when it comes to the writing to writing. I'll call her. I said, but Anne, where does she live? She said, Whitley, she lives right down the street. And she was her name was Lori Barnes. And she was our secretary for 15 years. And she and Anne together cataloged all of these letters, thousands upon thousands of them, and there are now a, a big university in the United States, Rice University, has collected the letters in an archive, and the letter, there are about 30,000 of these letters in the archive, all of the ones that had a, a, a complicated description of an experience. And I have to tell you, Richie, these experiences are incredible. Yeah. I mean, breathtaking. And these are not things people made up simply because when you read them, it would take some kind of an imaginative genius to make up even one of these stories. And they are so different. They are not all abduction stories. In fact, 
abductions like the one that happened to me were quite rare in the letters. The experiences people are having with this are exactly what you would think if some they would have if somebody very different from us who knows very little about us and is advanced in certain ways is trying to figure out how to communicate with us or how to connect with us in some way. And this speaks it's, to the why, which we're going to come on to the various possibilities now in a few minutes. But I, I'd love you to stay with this for a moment, because this is what fascinates me most. You see, because I was going to say to you, OK, Whitley, so you and Anne and was it Laurie, you said, the lady, the uh, right. Laurie, yeah. So you're going through all of this correspondence, which is voluminous, it's massive. And I was going to ask you to talk about the similarities, like were there certain things coming up an awful lot? But then you just said that so many of these letters didn't describe in in detail, like what happened to you in upstate New York. That fascinates no. me that. But were there, let, let, let me go back to that question. Were there things that kept cropping up that led you to think, well, this is just not people making it up. This is a guy in Taiwan. This is a guy in Dublin, Ireland. This is a woman in, you know, in Outer Mongolia. And they're having this exact same vision or seeing this exact same thing or they're being taken to the exact same place. Were there one or two things at the time where all three of you went, wow, this keeps coming up? Well, I, I will say this. Uh, it, 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 there wasn't, I don't, you know, it's, the letters have to be digitized and analyzed using, using a computer before we can say for sure whether or not there are uh, details that are consistent from letter to letter. Uh, the truth is that what happens is so varied that it's just extraordinary. One thing that is fairly consistent, though, is that it starts with an approach of something very strange that in many different ways will come into the life of somebody. Uh, 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 one example is uh, a young girl sees a light in the window of her bedroom where she and her sister sleep and looks out the window at night and sees this disc that's landed in uh, their garden behind the house in, the, in a clear place in it. And then she sees figures coming out of the disc that look like children. So at first she's not frightened until one of them appears in the window and she's absolutely terrified and then the whole thing kind of goes to pieces because she doesn't remember much about what happened afterwards so that's the closest and then there was another lady that that's in uh, the united states in australia who was vacuuming her living room in the middle of the day and she noticed movement out of the corner of her eye and she looked up and standing across the room was this figure like on the cover of communion the, with the big black eyes that you will see if you go on Amazon and look for communion and Streber, you'll see that cover with the big black eyes and uh, that face, which is what I saw. And she sent me the letter because she recognized the face as what she had seen. And anyway, she looks at this and there's this thing there and these other two smaller dark sort of brown creatures are beside it 
And the next thing she know, knows, they are taking her over in her mind. And she's frantic to get away. She's reduced to crawling down the corridor to try to get out of the house because they're pulling, literally pulling her with their minds. And finally, she ends up, at first, it's she thinks her husband is there and she's so glad he's come home, but it turns out it's a it's not real. It's something that they have produced in her mind. Then finally, he actually does come home and she can't believe it's really him. And then she discovers that something like four hours have passed from the time that that they showed up in the early afternoon and it's now early evening and he's come home from work. She was vacuuming about noon and it's now about six. And it fell and to her. No way. Yeah. She ends the letter with the words so poignant. Where did that time go? And this, of and course, gives you hairs standing up on the back of your neck because this happened to you. Time lost as well. Um, in upstate New York. Yeah. And it hap when it happens, if you don't, and this is the thing about it that gives me chills, if you don't, are not somehow attuned to it, or there isn't something unusual that happens right before the missing time, you don't know it even happened. So how many people does this actually happen to who don't even notice it? And how many people, I nearly said something stupid, I nearly said how many people don't have courage. That's a nonsense. I, I, I totally understand why people wouldn't come forward. Because, you, well, yeah. you know, you've, you've said in the past, I've heard you say hundreds of thousands, but you know that it's, it's probably many, many, many more people who it has happened to. And they think, well, if I say this to anybody, you know, this could have profound implications for my relationships. It could have implications for my career. I guess, Whitley, maybe far more people have not come and spoken about it than those that do. That would be my guess, to be honest. I think you're absolutely right. I think, I mean, why, especially now that people have seen up front and in public, so many people who have spoken about it publicly humiliated, they, they, uh, they wouldn't, I think there'd be more, even more hesitation now than there was then. In fact, it's much more difficult to talk about this now than it was in the past. Yeah. Or as far as writing is concerned, there was a time when publishers welcomed my books. And now I have to publish my own books because th this is considered an, a taboo subject. And, you know, there are so many. It's so different now than it was even 10 years ago when you there's so many things you can't say, so many things you're not allowed to write about. We're very we're censoring ourselves tremendously. And anyone who writes about what is known as rejected knowledge, which is this, is an example of rejected knowledge, rejected not by, not for any good reason, except that the powers that be don't like it, because they can't control it and they don't know what it is. Uh, it, 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 now, in those days, publishers would willingly publish you if you were talking about rejected knowledge. They liked it. And so did the public. Now the publishers will not touch it. They won't and go it, near it now. One, one of the things that, I think you mentioned it in the introduction, and 
Um, you are a terrific writer, and I'm not kissing your ass. You really are. You're so readable. Okay. I mean, I would say that, you know, you really are. It, the book is so easy to read. You're all of your books, really. I mean, I've read your fictional books. You know, I'm big into sci-fi and horror anyway. So, so I knew all about you even before Spain. 13 or so years ago but in the introduction you kind of hint that I mean you acknowledge this is what I love two things I've always loved about you number one you've never said this is what's going on or this is what is not going on you've kept an open mind from day one this is why I think you use the term visitors you don't say aliens you don't say UFOs in fact you prefer unidentified aerial phenomenon as a term don't you to, to, to UFO yeah. so you keep, you keep a brilliantly open mind and I love that and, um, and, and, and you write so well. And you acknowledge things. This is, this is the kind of writing that we, we kind of miss these days. You acknowledge things. You will put stuff in your books that might contradict something maybe that you might, you know, hold dear as, as a theory. But one of the things that does frustrate you, and by God does it frustrate me, while we have had an attitude shift in the last few years, like the, the, the Navy has released videos and the Navy has admitted, look, we, we don't know what this is. It doesn't look like it's, you know, using, you know, um, the aero, aerodynamics that we understand or even physics. So that's all very good. But you remain frustrated, I think, do you? That we've had millions of encounters, millions, I reckon. Yet, where's the really great video, the really great photograph? This must be a source of frustration to you. I bring that question up in yeah. the book. Yeah. Because these encounters are very common, but there is no piece of video I can point to that definitely is a video of an encounter. There is no, there's nothing in the public record like that. And you have to ask, with all of these cell phones around now, especially recently in the past 10 years or so, why is there so little? There are lots of good videos of UFOs, of UAPs for sure. And even the government, as you said, the US government has released some, and now the, I believe the British government released one or two too, but no images of these visitors and no images of anyone being abducted or the interior of one of these craft or anything like that, that you can point to and say, this is definitely real. I think there are a lot of out there that, some out there that may be real, but they may also be good fakes. And there's one very realistic one where it, the being talks about being from the future and all this stuff, but I had it analyzed and the video analyst showed that very clearly and quite easily that it was a puppet, not a real thing. And someone had made this. And, and that's generally the case when you see video or pictures of supposed aliens, it's almost always something faked. Why? Why don't we ever get a picture of them? I can't answer that question, but I wish I could. Yeah, especially with, you know, I, I was sent a, a phone, a new phone recently. I get a new one every couple of years. And it's ridiculous what you can do on the phone. 20 million megapixel cameras. You know, we've got all of this technology now. Yeah. Add AI to that, and we're going to have some really good fakes out there soon, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, I, wouldn't, I would not say that every image I've ever seen is a fake. But I would not say also that any image I've ever seen is something I would put out and say, this is real. I, I, I can't go that far. Folks, so, 
folks should get on your website, by the way, after the programme. It's unknowncountry.com. You'll get links to Whitley's books there. We have Whitley Streber on the line, hugely successful author and all round good egg, as we say in these parts. And uh, lovely to be talking about this subject. Something that, do you know, I was, because I mentioned you're, you're coming on, right? So I did a little video today. So usually what happens then is quite a few emails come in, ask him this, Richie, ask him this. One of the most intelligent questions, this comes in from Abigail, who's listening to the programme in Limerick. I think it's the first time we've ever heard from Abigail. She says, Richie, what happened to Whitley was terrifying, but it was also very physical. And it was painful. And, you know, that I'm paraphrasing this, it's a long email. So she says, how 40, nearly 45 years later, you won't, you won't thank me for that, nearly 45 years later, how do you feel about those visitors now? Because that was a traumatic experience. Well, I had, after... It happened. There was a long period of, first of all, confusion, because I had no idea that this could have that this could have involved anything except something in my mind, until it became obvious, uh, because of the injury, uh, the pain I was experiencing, that I had been raped. In fact, I went to the doctor because of the pain, and he said that he said, "Whitley, you know, you've been raped," and I thought to myself, "What in the world happened?" Yeah, because I had these very confused, disjointed memories of that night. And obviously something had gone wrong and remembered it being a completely quiet night. And I had remembered being in this little room. So I think some, I thought to myself, well, someone took me out of the house somehow. And it, it did it quietly enough to where I didn't wake up and, and raise an alarm. Uh, so I, I just don't know uh, if, 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 what happened afterwards was this i went out into the i started to once i realized and this is about march of 1986 that happened in december of 85 i went out into the started to go out into the woods and because i said to ann and i said honey you know this we we went through this whole thing of you know a temporal lobe epilepsy a brain tumor a psychotic break all kinds of things and it all came out to I was normal, except under great stress. That was what all of the tests revealed. And so we finally faced the fact that it was an unknown experience. <clears throat> and I said to her, they're real in some way. And I think I want to try to reconnect with them, not because I thought they were good or nice or pretty, in any way, but because, my God, they were real, and they were not us at all. Yeah. That was why I did it. I was, and I started going out into the woods at night to, to, to s demonstrate to them that I was ready for more contact. That and took some guts, Whitley. That, that took some guts, I mean. I mean, and, and, and of course, as you just said there, when, when I rudely interrupted you there, there were more encounters after that, but that took courage, that. I mean, you'll well, play it down, but it, that, that's gutsy. I can assure you, I know what it's like to walk up to a gallows because the first night I had to consciously force one foot in front of the other in that very quiet place surrounded by forest. And we had a little lawn, and beyond the lawn was the woods. 
and I got to the edge of the lawn, I could not go further. But a few nights later, I went all the way down into the woods to the place where it had happened. And I sat there trying to, to gain control of myself and to make this part of me, to, to master it. And, you know, if you read in the scientific literature about the human, uh, about the human mind, you find that curiosity is more powerful than fear, except in moments of immediate threat. And that's why we're all over the world now, by the way, and why we set off, and it's probably why we, we're willing to eat things like oysters. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Curiosity is very powerful, and, it, and I just kept thinking, Mike, they're real. And you know, I didn't want to hide, and it was hard not to hide, but they reciprocated. They actually came back into my life, and I wrote two more books, uh, Transformation and Breakthrough, yeah. with more experiences. And Anne said, if, and she was so uncanny, she knew, she seemed to be completely in control of this. You know, we went through all these fights and everything, and I was trying to get her to leave me because I thought I was a psych I'd become psychotic. And if I was ended up in a in mental institution, she wouldn't be able to divorce me and had, would have no means of support for her and our son. Uh, I finally faced the fact that I had to tell her. And I sat down with her and I said, honey, and at this point, our marriage was so rocky that she was thinking I was going to say we need a separation. So she was very teary. And I said, I said, Annie. I'm sorry to tell you this, but I think I was taken aboard a flying saucer by little men. And she looks at me and she says, oh, thank God. Did you? I thought you were going crazy. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful, that isn't it? Wonderful answer. And that, what an answer. The rest of my life started with that answer. Yeah. And and the rest of my married life. Uh, and and Anne took hold of the thing. And she mastered it intellectually because she was really smart and in other ways that I can't even put my finger on. And she would say, Whitley, we can get other people to come up to the cabin and they will have this experience here. I said, how do you know that? She said, well, I'll show you. I'll pick some people and I'll, the ones I pick, it will happen. And it was extremely consistent. The friends not even connected in any way with this experience people who had written us letters, they had experiences at the cabin that were so, so constituted that you couldn't say they were just dreaming them up. And other people even saw from a distance things coming, these bright lights that would come to the cabin. It was absolutely amazing. It was really extraordinary. I, I must book you for an after dinner speech because that's the greatest story you, I mean that, <laughs> isn't it wonderful honey um, I've got to tell you that I've been taken I've been abducted and taken away in an alien craft oh phew I thought you were losing your mind it doesn't get any better than that what uh, a, a lady she must have been she, she think, we have an argument about what she said she remembers saying uh, oh thank god now I don't have to get a divorce <laughs> 
fantastic. equally funny in a way. And, but yeah, I yeah. remember her saying, is, oh, thank God, I thought you were going crazy. So one of the two is right. Probably her version. Can we I read a few say. comments? And can I do my job and, and, and mention that we're talking about Whitley's new book, Zem. My listeners know I recommend nothing on this show. I never recommend anything. Uh, certainly nothing I haven't used or, or read. But I'm, I'm um, well into the book now. I'm loving it. It's immensely readable. It's profound. It's kind of like um, one of your... Um, one, there are two... Two friends of yours have put four words in the book. One of them is Jacques. And Jacques says, it's a book of two halves, and it really is. It's kind of like um, a voice for all the people who have experienced this over the years. And then you're getting into, you know, the malevolence of governments, but also getting into why this might be happening. We've got Whitley Streber on the line. The book is on Amazon. His website is unknowncountry.com. I've got to read a few comments, Whitley, because um, the, the great thing about this is you can just go on my website and you'll see these comments. They're on the website. Uh, there are hundreds of them and on the app. Let me get one or two of these very quickly so that we can get on to talking with Whitley. You can reach out via the Richie Allen Show app via the Google Play or the App Store or get onto the website richieallen.co.uk. Look, I'll just give you one straight up. A number of people are asking about um, how you feel about various theories. And of course, you're very open minded. Like Trevor says, what does Whitley think? about the connection this might have to animal mutilations. Now, of course, this is something you get into in this book and previous books. We might come back to this in a moment. A um, number of people have asked about this being possibly interdimensional. Like all of the great sci-fi movies, we think of beings coming from other planets across galaxies, coming through black holes and wormholes. But what if it's interdimensional? So there's a lot of that. So do you want to speak to a couple of those? The animal mutilations comes up in, in them. This is a phenomenon which is happening all the time, isn't it? Well, yeah, and it, it, it just recently happened, uh, I think, uh, was it Kansas? There were somewhere, there were a whole bunch of these animal mutilations, and they're very strange, and I, I, I think that some of them may be caused by natural causes, by predators, and some by people, but some of them are unexplainable in a very deeply profound way, in that the animals are found drained of blood and there is no blood on the site and you know no predator can do that and then there are surgically precise incisions on these animals that are they're consistently around areas where there are a lot of stem cells such as the eyelids and the genitals and places like that where if you were trying to make clones or something that's where what you would go for to get where you would go to get the cells and then the blood is gone. And I, 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 I think that, you know, in view of the fact that they also take sexual material from human beings, um, eggs and sperm, that, that there is a great deal of interest on their part in examining our genetics of the of beings on the planet Earth. And we, how do we know it's we know of cattle mutilations because you know, cattle, we're concerned about cattle, but what about other animals? There may be things happening to them that we don't know a thing, we don't mm. ever notice know a thing about, and plants as well. In fact, it's not to, to, to really just open the door here. It's not impossible that they are literally making a clone of our entire planet somewhere else in this 
universe because you have human genetic material, you have animal genetic material, maybe plants. And they could be they could be terraforming another planet. Wow. I mean, let's, you know, because this, whatever they are, they have astonishing powers. And so let's, I think the first thing we need to do in, in order to think clearly about them is to forget our own boundaries. And then to say to ourselves, if we didn't have the boundaries we do have of not being able to travel to other worlds and stars and so forth. And we found a species and a world that was somehow in trouble or that we thought beautiful and had the power to duplicate somewhere else, like sort of artists of a kind that we, we can't even conceive of here. Would we do it or not? We might very well do it. So when you talk about the cattle mutilations, like everything about this, you are talking about a little part of a very big mystery. But the operative word is always mystery. Mystery, yeah. Absolutely right. Whitley Streber is our guest. Um, Isabel has been on to say this, and we've had a number of people uh, mention this. And again, you mentioned this in the book, and you mentioned it, you've mentioned it before previously. Uh, we're speaking to Whitley Streber about his new book, Them, which I recommend you read. You can get it on Amazon. You can go to his website to find out more about it. Now, Isabel says she's been listening recently to Sarah Breskman Cosme, and she's written something about, um, about women who are under hypnosis. And when they are under hypnosis, they mention these really clear visions of alien abduction and becoming pregnant. You know, um, I think I've read, I mean, I mean, I mean I've read this in, in, in them, but some women are not pregnant and then they find out they are pregnant and then you have the opposite. Some women were pregnant and then they're not pregnant. Um, yes. what, should we, what, what should we think about that? Well, what we should think about that is that they're meddling around with our sexuality. That's malevolence, isn't it? That's not nice. Well, well for us it is, but then again, yeah. we meddle around with animal sexuality all the time in exactly the same way. I think the real issue here is that they don't understand how we, how we think of ourselves or that we think of ourselves as different from the animals in the, on the planet. To them, it's quite clear that we are just another animal, perhaps a more interesting one in some ways, I would think or right. hope. But they are not according us rights that they don't accord that, that, that are different from, or respect, I should say, that is different from what they accord other animals, except they mutilate cattle. But they generally, I don't think, mutilate us. I have one or two stories that I've followed up on, but not with much success. So I don't think they do that to us. And that may be a sign that they are aware of that we are sentient, but not concerned enough to stop whatever their program is that involves taking sexual material. No. Yeah, and that's because you, you did say that we've got to think of them outside of our own parameters of understanding you know, physiology and, and understanding um, psychological limits. Because people have been saying to me, you know, what happened to you was a terrible thing. I mean, they didn't give much consideration uh, as to how you would feel about the visitation afterwards. And, if, and of course, you've heard... None whatsoever. None whatsoever. And you've heard from many thousands of people who've had similar 
um, experiences and people who have had implants left in, which have caused problems, and people who have had, um, you know, what, what, what is tantamount to a sexual assault and has been very right. problematic, yeah. Well, our women, I mean, I, my, my heart, when a woman has, is carrying a baby, that is the most sacred thing and this, in, in, a, in an instinctive and biological level, it is the most precious thing she can do. And this is why she's in the world. And to have that taken. And then when she repeats her story to be told that she's crazy is awful. Must be horrendous. It's worse than happen what happened to me. All I had was semen taken from me, but I didn't have something that profound and that intimate happen to me. That is awful. But at the same time, if you look at it from the from the perspective of the way we treat animals in the wild, we do things like that to them all the time, or we capture them. We we capture. Uh, mice and uh, breed them and chimpanzees and so forth and do all sorts of things to them in laboratories without so much as a buy your leave. We never even consider the idea of them having rights. It just never occurs to us. That's true. And yeah, and the, it, it obviously hasn't occurred to these people or didn't. You know, the, the abductions trailed off after the year about 2000. But I, I think the last really big abduction cases happened maybe a few recently, but most all of them were before 2010. They happened between the mid sixties and the late nineties. So perhaps they either got what they want or they realized that this wasn't the, of an appropriate way to treat us. It's huge interest in this Joe, somebody who calls himself Joe Dirt. Hi Joe. He says the Penturch incident in Wales is fascinating, really enjoying listening to Whitley. Thanks for, very much for that, Joe. Um, James says, I've heard Whitley many times with Art Bell many years ago. It's lovely to hear him again. That's from James. Thanks very much. I've heard some of those Art Bell conversations. They're brilliant. Uh, Grace Ann says, what a fast, fascinating man uh, and a great interview to hear, Richie. Thank you. That's from Grace Ann. There's so many of these coming in. They're delighted uh, to hear from you today. Um, Whitley, Sean asks, does Whitley think the 411 or 411 cases and the documented events at Skinwalker Ranch, do they offer any insights into what the abduction phenomenon is about? Well, the 411 cases that she refers to are the people who go missing in uh, big national parks, like in the, in, in the United States, in Yellowstone, and big, these huge parks, which are wilderness areas. And... Uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons why a person might go mi missing in a wilderness area, but there are some cases that David Polites mentions in his books about this that are very hard to explain, except that the idea that the people were mysteriously spirited away. And um, uh, so it, I think that it's possible that there are people who are taken and not returned. I, I would think that would be possible, especially if you look at the way the abductions were handled with so much indifference to the feelings of, of the abductees to the point that they're, they're really being victimized, then 
who, someone who would do that, why would they stop there? If they if they wanted a person physically, they might they might well take them. And uh, yeah, that's a possibility. I think that has to be recognized. Would I go out into a national park and camp out at night alone? I don't think so. Well, hang on a second. You were brave enough to leave that cabin and well, go out there and invite the ex- you know the experience again to invite the visitation, which I'm not again blowing smoke at you. That took guts, my friend. Well, I know it did, but it, it, at the same time, I was so curious. With what I know now, I, I think I would be a little more careful than I was then. I would, I would still do it, but I honestly didn't think in terms of being taken for away forever at those at that time because I had, after all, been brought back. Yeah, they brought you back. I had yeah. returned, but that's you know there was one, and we'll get to the Skinwalker Ranch in a moment. I, I, I don't know, Richie, how much time we have left. Well, I'm looking at I, I air till seven o'clock, right? So we can go to about five minutes to seven. I'm so glad you asked that question because you've done more interviews and more podcasts than I've done. So you're a good manager of time. So you keep an eye on the clock then and use well, this I'm time. Well, I will then. In any case, getting back to yeah. to this, um, I had an experience after, after I began going in the woods and there were indications that they were around. We would see lights and things and my brother came up to the cabin once and uh, we, we were very close and not in age. Uh, he was 11 years younger than I, which meant that when he was a very young boy, I was able to get him to play practical jokes on our father for me, which was great fun, because Daddy <laughs> never never occurred to him that a three-year-old wouldn't be thinking these things up. But in any case, yeah. uh, uh, the, the he came up to the cabin, and we went out walking into the place where it had happened together, and there was an enormous. UFO in the sky over we both saw it, it was just unmistakable a great big a great big uh, disc and it was dusk in it, 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 it just in the evening a big round disc it wasn't like a star or anything and it was right there and it went fairly rapidly above us and then I saw but Richard did not see these three figures in the in the kind of in the gloaming in the distance it, it sort of it was fairly misty that evening and uh, he did not see them but but obviously something was going on I mean there were, this was one of these indications and so I decided to make a little bench down there stone bench and I would sit on the bench and I would think about one of them coming and sitting on the bench with me and we could have some kind of a conversation because that that I wanted to have more contact since it appeared to be real and I seemed to be I didn't feel that after the abduction that they were going to come back and do the same thing again. I was feeling a little more comfortable with it. Perhaps it was just uh, being a Pollyanna, I don't know. But in any case, what happened was one morning in February of 19, I believe, 88, there came this sound from the woods at just before dawn, February morning, very cold, snow on the ground. And this sound like a trumpet blew in the, and I thought to myself, that is not a normal sound for our place. I feel like that might be 
them and they might be indicating their prayer. They might be calling me to come down in the woods. So I threw on my bathrobe and slippers. I had a pair of very heavy slippers and went out onto the deck and then onto a little hill above my house that looked down through the now naked winter woods to a clearing, which is where it had originally happened. And there was a great dark shadow in the clearing uh, that was uh, very much shaped like a UFO. And there were some, some figures there that you could just see through the trees. And I paused when I saw this. And I heard immediately a voice in my head, the only time I've ever heard a voice in my head, in fact, in my life, say in this very rough tone, come on, come on. <laughs> that was not going to make me get down into those woods. In fact, I decided at that moment, if I go down there, will I be taken forever? Nice. Is this a kidnapping or a meeting? Because this does not sound like any meeting to me. I turned around and went back to the house because I thought, again, this was always in my mind during these times, I can't just disappear on Anne and leave her hanging. I'm not going to take the risk. And this is before I knew anything about the David Polites stories, the 411 stories. But when I put my hand on the doorknob, the most extraordinary thing happened. There were three cries from above the woods. Oh, oh, oh. But they weren't just cries. They were the most emotionally rich sounds I have ever heard in my life. But also at the same time, the most almost machine-like in their perfection. They were spaced so perfectly that it had an uncanny effect on me. It's something that we never experience. I've never experienced it before and since. I've never heard a description of it. But it meant, it caused me to lose my ability to hear music for nearly a year. Music sounded very muddy. The beats were off and it was very sloppily put together just from hearing those three tones. A year afterwards, that is extraordinary. It, it took a year for me to get over that moment. That's how powerful it was. And so the, the, I wasn't, I wasn't um, in a situation where I was rejecting this. I was going for it, even though I felt this danger. And then when I went back to the house, I've always regretted that I didn't go down there. And yet at the same time, if I had, I may have been captured forever. You I might think. have never come back, yeah. And you yeah. would have left your wife on her own. Absolute. And this was conscious. You were absolutely cognizant of that fact. If I go down there, I might never come back. Well, when I heard that voice, yeah. it was so rough and mean. It sounded like the voice of a... Of, of, of a soldier who, not a soldier, but I'm one who didn't like me very much. And yeah, I, there's no way I'm going down there. I, in fact, I was glad that I wasn't dragged right out of the cabin, frankly, again. And when was the last time you popped up to the cabin, up to the area? Is it something you do from time to time? No. No, what happened was in, 
I have been to the cabin recently, but uh, back in the in nineties, uh, you know, we were doing okay with the books because um, I people will buy a book from a controversial author, and I was finished with communion and writing fiction again, and you know, I was sort of past all of that. But then uh, South Park, the America, I don't know if you have it here. It's a very popular cartoon TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. States and and they came out with their 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 uh, first episode. Their it was very much hyped and a huge huge thing was a lampoon of me. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, and people will buy a book from somebody who's controversial, but they will not buy a book from a laughing stock. And I basically became that for having been raped. I had the experience of being laughed at by millions of people for my rape, which they they chose some a phrase from the back of communion. In the front of communion, it says very clearly, I was raped. In the back of it, it's, it mentions, and under hypnosis, I mentioned it as a rectal probe. Yeah. They seized on that, and the rectal probe became an international joke, and me along with it, and we essentially lost everything. And ended up uh, in a little condo in Texas, barely hanging on by our fingernails. And what was your what was your mindset when this was going on? Look, I've, I I do this radio show. It's got an audience. It does okay, but I don't get recognised very often. Once in a blue moon, maybe. But I mean, you were instantly recognisable, and the rectal probe, that level of humiliation. I've asked many years ago. I asked uh, David Ike this question about how do you cope with it and he gave his answer how did you cope with it and and Anne, that level of because um, it's nasty horrible mocking stuff and it's coming from everywhere what was your mindset like how did you get through that it wasn't easy I didn't get through it actually it was scarred me for life and frankly uh, I, and Anne too and our son who was humiliated mercilessly in school because he was the son of the rectal probe man yeah his his scars will never leave him. Why would they? And that, did, did that have an impact on your relationship with your son? You know, later on yeah, when he grew up, did he did, did. did he resent it, you? It had and has such an impact. Like he had many experiences when he was a boy with the visitors that he used to report in great detail. And we were quite careful not to expose him to my stories. It was never spoken about in the house. Only if he brought it up was it spoken about. And but now he says he doesn't remember a thing. He would not will not allow his children to read any of my books. They've never read my books. Um, they and he will not allow me to speak about this at all in his, in the, his presence or the presence of his family. Nor will he allow me to be even in the house when they socialize with their friends. Uh. I have to leave. That's not easy, I, I, I don't imagine. No, but I love him dearly, and I love my family, and I understand his position perfectly, very clearly, and I accept it. And so, it was something that was done to us by people having fun being cruel, and that's one of, one of humanity's worst traits, it's but a, it is there. It's a heavy price. You know, I, I believe that something happened to you. I wouldn't have interviewed you all those years ago if... If I didn't, you know, 
Um, I don't know exactly what happened to you. And one of the reasons I like you and I'm drawn to your work is because you repeatedly say that ultimately I don't know. Something definitely happened. And that's something that you you came to understand over the years through the thousands of people you met and we hear from so many of them in the book in them that this is real this is not imagination this happened what happened and why why it happened that's the eternal quest for you I suppose and for everybody else who who had the visitation can I just because we mentioned Anne so much right and uh she must have been an incredible woman and I don't want to make you sad. I really don't. But a beautiful thing I learned from um, from researching again this week about, about your good self and over the weekend. And this is amazing. And this was properly documented. Is that at the most terrible time for you when Anne passed away, the most beautiful thing happened at the same time because friends of yours and Anne's called you to report that they'd heard from Anne somehow that they needed to get in touch with you. But Anne had left the physical body. She had died. That's an amazing story, that. And beautiful as well as tragic. Do you want to just talk about that? What do you think was going on there? If you had to make uh, a f- your last five books, what was happening there, do you think? Do you think? Anne was the most unmysterious, mysterious person you would ever meet. Right. Anne and I, I'll, let's talk about Anne a little bit, because I, it doesn't make me sad. I love talking about Anne. Anne was the best thing that ever happened to me and the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. Um, and I'll tell you how we met. Um, I was, I was living in London. I'd been going to school here, and I'd finished and was back in the States and living in New York absolutely alone with nothing. I had gotten a job in the advertising business simply because it started with an A and I was working at Benton and Bowles because NW Air, which I'd looked up in the phone book, didn't hire me, but Benton and Bowles right. did. So I was, <laughs> I was in the A business on the Bs. That's how I was beginning my life. And actually, you know, I'm a very, I like people. And so advertising was actually a very good place for me to be. And I was enjoying my career a lot, but I was terribly lonely. And I, I went to a couple of singles bars and everyone, it turned out all the men there were always airline pilots and doctors and lawyers. But I had a feeling that they weren't, they were something less than that. And I'm not a liar. I, I don't, you know, I, my dad taught me the one thing you don't do is you never lie. And so I would say I was a media planner and the girls would immediately di- disappear because that's a sort of low level advertising job. No future there. No future. Run, ladies, run. Yeah. Right, exactly. So they were going and I'm not the prettiest fellow on the block either, a handsome fellow on the block either. So there was that. So I found this thing and I also had learned I'm pretty smart, but I wanted a really smart wife. I wanted a wife who was maybe ideally even smarter than me because I thought that, you know, I wanted to be a writer and I needed someone who was smart enough to really help me do that and who wanted to do that. And uh, so I went to this thing called Mindmates that I saw in an ad in a newspaper and they sent this enormous package of things to fill out essays and stuff. And I thought, boy, this is serious. (laughs) So I filled it all out and sent it in. A couple of weeks later, an, an, a, a letter, I almost said email, but a letter showed up in the mailbox 
and I opened it. It was from Mindmates, and it had a list of names. And there was something immediately obvious, strange about them. All except one of them had a last name that was either the name of a fish or something <laughs> close. And I thought, this is really weird. Is the truth that there's only one name here and these are all fakes? <laughs> so I called one of the fish. Uh, or, or she was actually salmon, not, not salmon, but in any case. And she was real, but we didn't hit it off. So I thought, no more fish. I'm trying the one that's not a fish. That was Ann Maddox. And I went, I called her and I went to pick her up for lunch. She was working as in, a, in an office. And I walked in and this beautiful girl was sitting at the reception desk, big brown eyes looking up at me and in all, in all ways, a highly desirable female to say the least. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I hope Ann Maddox looks something like this girl. And I said, um, I'm here to meet Ann Maddox. And the girl said, I'm Ann. And we were not apart together, apart for more than two weeks for the next 45 years. And it wasn't only because of her beauty, it was because of her fabulous heart and brilliant mind. She was tremendously brilliant, far smarter than me, so much so that I thought, at first, what if I, have I bitten off more than I can chew here? Because this is a woman who understands physics and all kinds of things that I can't even come <laughs> close to. And, but we had a wonderful marriage. And when the communion, I've already said what happened when she, I clued her into what had happened to me, the communion thing, but she took it in hand and understood it very well. And one day she came out of her office in the 90s and said the most important thing about it that I think has ever been said. She said, Whitley, this has something to do with what we call death. And that hardly ever comes up. But the UFO people don't want to hear that. They want this to be aliens from another planet with all the same belt buckle or whatever. No, no, this is something far more, far deeper than that. And what she, the reason she said that is that time and again, the letters would say a dead friend or relative was involved. Right. And with these aliens. And when we had people coming up to the cabin, we would often have situations where someone would say, well, my brother, my dead brother showed up this afternoon on the road. And I was, I thought he was real. And I asked him to come down to the cabin and he disappeared before my eyes. And Anne would always say, the visitors will be here tonight because there was a connection of some kind and is. It's as if Wherever they are from or whatever they are, they don't have a veil between the living and the dead. And realizing this, she said one day, and I completely, when Annie passed away, I'd completely forgotten this. She said, Whitley, we have to make a pact together. The first one of us who passes away, if it's possible, will contact friends and tell them to call the other one. Because you and I, being the people we are, will never believe it if it's done directly. So years pass, and he gets terribly ill with cancer, and she dies. On that night, the grief was extraordinary. I was sitting in the living room. My kids had, were taking a walk. 
and they had been very, they're very good kids, never think that they aren't. And uh, uh, first, the first thing that had happened really happened when she was just at the edge. She began to speak to us in our minds. And my, my daughter-in-law said, Mama says, she, Mother says she wants to die in a pair of red pajamas. And that afternoon, <laughs> it was Anne experimenting with whether or not we could hear her, I'm sure. And she jumped up and ran out to a store immediately and bought red pajamas, and we put her in them. And then right before she died, we were having dinner because she'd been in a coma for a long time. And I heard her in my mind say, Whitney, I'm dying right now just as clear as a bell. And I ran in and held her in my arms. <laughs> anyway, an hour and a half later, the phone rings. And I think, oh, God, the last thing I want is a phone call. But it was one of Anne's friends and I, that no one knew yet. I, we hadn't told anybody. And I answered it. And it was a girl named woman named Bell Fuller, and Bell said, Whitley, I just heard Anne's voice in my ear saying me to call you. And I thought, how strange. But then over the next couple of days, it kept happening with other people. And I realized, then I remembered, my God, it's the pact. She's doing it. You'd forgotten about the pact. Completely, yeah. That's beautiful. And I realized Anne's doing it. And Anne, Anne had even created an avatar, that is to say something to symbolize her presence when she's around. And she did it starting in uh, the January before she died in August. She already knew what she was doing. She, she was extraordinary. So this avatar is the white moth. And in January, she started trying to get me to memorize a poem of William Butler Yeats's uh, called Song of the Wandering Angus. And yeah. I thought, why is she wanting me to do this? But when I failed to memorize it, I sort of blew the idea off because I've never memorized a poem in my life. And uh, she cried when she tested me and I couldn't remember it. And now I have it memorized, of course. But part of it is this, when white moths were on the wing, and the moth-like stars were flickering out. That and that that stanza, those two lines rather, are important in this story because what then happened? We have I had uh, I have automatic cameras in the house, of course, in hopes that the visitors will show up and I'll get a video. For goodness sakes, um, this white moth began to appear in front of the camera in the living room when I was away. And I was at a conference, and one of the people at the conference was very psychic. And I said, look at this moth keeps appearing in front of my camera and making the camera's alert go off and say there's movement. And he looked at it and said, that's no ordinary moth, Whitley. I said, what do you think it is? He said, I don't know, but I'm just telling you, I know it's not ordinary. It doesn't act like that. Right. Yeah. And so I came back to the house and found no moth. Then I was at a conference, another conference, and I was speaking about Anne. And suddenly the phone beeped, and it was the white moth was in front of the thing again. And I made the connection finally between that and the poem. 
then on Christmas Day of that year, I was with my son and I was saying in his house in about 100 miles from mine, and I was saying, I think the white moth might have some. The phone dinged and there was the white moth flying back and forth. Subsequently, I wrote a book about Anne, about her in the afterlife called uh, Afterlife Revolution and got into all of this because there much, much more happened. Uh, and it became obvious that Anne was still with us. I, in fact, to the extent that I wear both rings now, I don't think our marriage has even ended. So You wear both rings. God, yeah. that's so romantic. So that. I, was, I was at another conference, uh, and I was presenting the book at the conference. And it was a, a conference of a bunch of, of academics and professors and scientists who were looking at me with pretty unbelieving eyes, let me put it that way. But then they all went to lunch, and they were at this lunch in February in upstate California where there's no moths. And they're all sitting around a big table, and this white moth comes and circles the table. And they were all amazed. They're all applauding. And then we have, and the conference is over a couple of days later, we have a final banquet and, and in, a, in a big banquet hall. And the white moth appears again in the middle of the banquet hall, flying around. And there was a podcaster, Jeremy Vaney, there, who Anne liked. He used to have podcasts on my, our website. He still does once a month, in fact, uh, uh, on the website. And he, he was sitting there. And the white moth circles the room. Everyone's laughing and applauding. And, and we're, everyone is thinking, could this be a coincidence? Then the white moth proceeds to land on his head. And I have a photograph of that. And then it takes off again after a couple of seconds, flies toward the, there was a big fireplace in it, it flies toward this mantle, there was no fire going, and before all of our eyes, it just simply poof, it disappears like a magic trick. And that was, <laughs> that was so utterly convincing. And since then, I have, and many people see the white moth and who are on my website and so forth, and they're in touch with Anne, and Anne is there for them in all kinds of remarkable ways and has helped me in my life immeasurably since this happened, since she passed on. And the main thing she has helped me to know is that it does not end. This is a journey, but it's death is only a passing from one state to another. And Anne being Anne, you soon learn that she's having a lot of fun, yeah. that it's not bad on the other side and it's not terrible at all. I asked her so many questions. I asked her, I asked her questions like, what is enlightenment? And she, her answer was enlightenment is what happens when there is nothing left of us but love. What a life aim to have. And I asked her about compassion, and she said simply, each of us is all we have. And if you look at any other person, no matter how you feel about them, despise them, love them, whatever, and you think of them in that context, it changes everything immediately. It kind of does, doesn't it, when you think like that? All, yeah. all we have is each other. 
Whether All we have. Yeah. And, and that other person is in there. And whatever they may be, they are as alone as I am in me. And they are all they have. That one, that person is his whole universe. And whatever happens to him is what he has or she has. And it, yeah. you, it, it makes you respect other people very much. And it's so important in this very egotistical world full of fancy celebrities parading around. Yeah. You know, you might you might be well known to people, but don't you do that. Yeah. You're an ordinary person, just like everybody else. My wonder is Anne some somehow present today. I don't say that in any way to be rude or to be silly, but I've been working pretty hard in very recent times on my own tolerance. So I'm stunned that you've brought this up really. I don't believe in coincidences. You're there down south and, you know, you're in the UK for a while. I'm up here in Salford. I've been working really hard on that, on that notion that each of us, all we have is each other, really. And working on not being annoyed by the idiosyncrasies of people and just appreciating people for who they are. And I've been working on that because that's profoundly important now more than ever, I think. Oh, I think so, because there's so much hate in the world. My God, I'm looking at the United yeah. States. Every day there's another shooting. There, there was one just down the street from where I live yesterday. And, it, you know, you, I'm sure you know, everyone in the UK, you've got all kinds of problems here like we do everywhere. But so far you don't have that. No. Uh, a knife is a harder thing to kill with than a gun, thank goodness. Can, can I ask you a question, Whitley, on this? Excuse me again for interrupting, but I'm looking at the, at the clock. Um, I hope when you get back to New York in the summer, if you find a bit of time, we might do another couple of hours because there's loads that we could have gotten into uh, today. But blame me for kind of meandering around. That's kind of how I can't help that. I'm a bit of an idiot like that. But I've loved every minute of this and I, I'd love us to pick it up again in the summer. We're, we're speaking with Whitley Strieber. His book, Them, is an absolute must read. I can't recommend it highly enough. Do check it out. Go to his website. Find him on Twitter. You'll find Whitley Strieber on Twitter. There's only one. And follow him there. Um, these things you described and what Anne said to you when you asked her for that bit of knowledge and she said, like, all we have is each other. Do you feel just to be a little bit newsy or politically kind of to talk politically for a moment. But I do believe that forces in whether it's governments and whether it's the forces behind governments, you know, the think tanks and the NGOs, I think there's a deliberate agenda to turn us against one another, you know, using identity politics, politics and sorts and things like that. And I think one of the reasons they do that by they, I mean, again, the governments and, and their, 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 World Economic Forums and all these groups is because they want to keep us as far away from understanding what you've been talking about for the last few minutes. They want us not to understand that. And they, they push these things. And that's why you've got young people. You know, as, as terrible as it is to take a gun into a supermarket or into a school, something has gone terribly wrong in the life of that young person. And I think we're being driven apart by other forces so that we don't really understand who we are and what we're capable of. What do you think about that? I think that's exactly right. And the key thing is who we are and what we're capable of with the emphasis on the what we're capable of. Whoever this is wants us to feel 
powerless, helpless, small, and wrong. And I happen to think we are powerful, strong, large, and right. Yeah. And they do not want us to feel those things. I have no doubt of it in my mind. And who they are is an entirely different question. I don't know. And sometimes I think to myself, perhaps all of us are victims. Or perhaps there are small, very powerful groups who are basically afraid of the power of other human beings to truly be themselves and express their full worth into the world. Yeah. And But if you look at history, you have to think to yourself, what in the world would cause anybody to, to start these crazy wars that have make no sense? <clears throat> world War I made no sense. It was simply a matter of using machinery to kill young men yeah. in mass quantities. Millions and millions of men. Millions of them, and, and the same in World War II. And the Jews, I mean, what in the world? Who would do that? And yet they did it. Uh, and nowadays you have this, Putin, his country was in good shape. Everything was going well. And then suddenly he wrecks the whole thing and wrecks another country for no apparent reason. And you have the Chinese, out of just apparent arrogance, wanting to get involved in a war with the United States. Uh, and I don't know who would win that war, frankly. In, in, the, in, the nu in the nuclear age, none of us would win, I think. That's the answer to that one. That's the other thing. Why in the world do these people fool around with warfare? at a time when the least mistake could end life on Earth. And you know what, when, when it comes to the invasion of Ukraine, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an anti-war pacifist. I agree with you. There, there are no excuses for invading countries. I don't say but. You, you might be waiting for a but. I suppose Putin supporters would say that the United States and France and, and NATO, particularly NATO, they have really encroached on Russia over the last 30, 35 years in ways that they promised at the end of the Cold War they wouldn't do. That's not an excuse for invading Ukraine, of course. But, um, but it's, 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 it, it's complex. And yeah, it, it keeps me up nights because you never know what's going to happen, really, ultimately, what, what, what lunatic um, um, idea. I, I mean, rather than try... Do you, in the time we have left, I, I mean, just because you mentioned Russia and Ukraine... Isn't it interesting that our governments here in the UK, the European Union, right, and the United States, um, they keep talking about arming Ukraine. Nobody, not a single politician, uh, has the courage or at least hasn't been allowed to say, what are we doing arming? Why, why shouldn't we be insisting that we get two sides around the table and we find some amenable you know, resolution for everybody and we stop this once and for all. All the politicians want to do is keep arming them, which to me, Whitley, I don't know what your opinion is, that's just insane to me. Well, why didn't the, why didn't the West recognize the fact that Russia was being put under a great deal of pressure? Yeah. As you pointed out earlier, it was perfectly obvious to anyone who looked into it at all. I wasn't surprised when Putin lashed out. 
But what does surprise me, if you look across the whole of history, it's just one lunatic war after another and people feeling pressured and going and and old men sending young men to their deaths. Yeah. Rich, and rich people, old men sending young men to their deaths. There's something instinctual about it because uh, like a, a, in a lion, pride of lions, the old lion will fight off and often kill the younger lions until they finally get strong enough to kill him. But if you look at human history, it's always the old men with the epaulets on their shoulders sending the young men into into situations where they all get killed. Yeah. And that's going back all the way to the beginning of time almost. And there's some kind of deep instinct there, in other words, that we don't have a hold of. But the other question is the one that you've touched on. Is there some kind of hidden machinery that is involved? And I have to say, when you look at this UFO thing, it's clear that there is, they absolutely do not want something to come out. And it's, it's deeper than just, oh, UFOs are real and we don't want to say that. Everybody knows they're real now or anyone who's got any sense. And uh, that therefore probably someone's coming out of them. I mean, why would, why would they be zipping around in the sky and never land or never yeah. come? And, and, and they're interested in us. And if they weren't interested in us, I think we would be, it would be very embarrassing for us, frankly. <laughs> uh, in any case, who suppresses that? Who wants to make us feel confused and disempowered and unable to control our own destiny? Because what if I had known this could happen to me before it happened? The whole experience would have been very different. And maybe I wouldn't have fought like a, like a trapped animal. Maybe what happened to me wasn't even meant to be violent and bad the way it came out. Because after all, they did have something there, this machine that kept saying over and over, what can we do to help you stop screaming? Uh, yeah. They were trying to calm me down. And I think if our side had handled it differently from the beginning, Maybe that wouldn't have been, maybe it would have been a very different sort of experience. An educational experience, maybe. Something far something more profound. Yeah. Something understood and agreed to, instead of having to be carried out of my house like an animal being carried out of his burrow can by we, a scientist. Can, can we pick this up, um, like I said, another time? I know you've got a pretty busy schedule. It doesn't have to be in the summer. It can be in the, in the autumn or the fall, because we're, we're just about out of time. And um, before I go, I've got to read one or two um, comments, but I, I want to say, folks, go to unknowncountry.com. That's Whitley's website. Look for them online. You'll get it at good online book retailers, which I'm reading at the moment, and I'm fascinated by. I really am. It's terrific. In fact, I'm going to get a paperback, or I'm going to, I'm going to get, because my missus won't use the um, the e-reader, so I've got to get her uh, the book, so I'll do that. Um, it's a very small fee for you, that. That's my very small fee for you coming on today. Not that you wanted a fee. You didn't <laughs> ask for a fee at all. Can I, can I just say from the bottom of my heart, thanks 
for sharing such a personal experience and 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 of course i mean everything today but your experience of of um of Anne passing away and how that happened that's meant a lot to a lot of people and if you get a chance if you go onto my website where it says live comment you'll see some beautiful messages there uh well, I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure you're used to them anyway we're, we're done I, I i want to tell the people who left those messages i am going to read them and i thank you very much for them well, thank you for coming on today. UnknownCountry.com, then by Whitley Strieber. I look forward to the next time. And give our mutual pal, Martin Noakes, a big smacker on the cheek from me, will you? A big kiss. <laughs> I, I wouldn't dare to do that. <laughs> but, but, I can hear him in the spirit, background. Yes, Martin is a great guy. He's one of the great uh, guys. Wonderful. He, uh, he, he, he writes extraordinary music, and it is very special. And you, where do we find your music, Martin? Um, uh, Spotify, 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 Spotify. on Spotify, and you will find it is very different from what you usually hear. There's a powerful message there, and it's worth listening to. It, it is 100%, and he's been very good to the show over the years. He's helped with jingles and stuff. Um, so, uh, top man is Martin Noakes, N O A K E S. Whitney, Godspeed to you on your travels. Look after yourself. Thanks again to Martin, and I look forward to next time. Take care. Thank you, Richie. Bye for now. Whitley Streber, folks, on Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. He's on Twitter, too, at Whitley Streber, S-T-R-I-E-B-E-R. Follow him there. UnknownCountry.com is the website, and that was um, a great listen. It was for me, anyway. And uh, don't abuse me, right, because there's lots we could have gotten into there, but the time was finite, and I wanted to stay with them. you know, that story about the communication with his wife after his wife had passed away. But we'll get him back on. Um, he's amenable to coming back on. And then we'll talk about the the recent unidentified aerial phenome- phenomenon, I can't even say the bloody word, and what the US government is doing. Why would they be... What's disclosure? What's going on with disclosure? Why would they be putting out information like, oh yeah, there are unidentified aerial craft and they are not explained away by our understanding of aerodynamics. Why would they say that? And what about fake alien invasions, which is something um, my pal Jean Ann mentioned to me during that chat. Ronald Reagan mentioned this many years ago, fake alien invasions. So there's plenty we can get into, but there will be a part two. It's been a long time since I first spoke with him, but uh, there'll be a part two soon enough. Thanks um, for your messages during uh, that uh, Steve says too many humans have lost the moral and spiritual intelligence. Melanie says love is a vibration that collectively is very powerful, I think. Uh, thanks, thanks for that, Melanie. Um, William Henderson, how are you, William? Uh, fascinating stuff, um, says uh, says William. I really appreciate that. Um, let me scroll on down. Uh, let me scroll on down loads and loads of messages just saying you enjoyed listening to it I really appreciate that Uh, Cliff has been back to say there is far more out there than we are led to believe many thanks uh, says Cliff Um, Linda says the same Bob has been on to say great chat with Whitley thank you very much there are many 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 messages um, coming in so thanks for them right that's about it for me tomorrow I will be taking telephone calls and Skypes and what have you so I'll keep as long as the Skype still works we'll take Skypes and phone calls but I will use WhatsApp tomorrow as well so there's three ways to contact me tomorrow about 5.30 tomorrow we'll pick up the 
I'll be picking up your phone calls. You might want to talk about some of the themes that we discussed with uh, Whitley today. If you want to do that, that's fine. It's it's your thing. I don't set the agenda for the phone in. So from 5.30 tomorrow, Wednesday, I'll be taking your telephone calls, Skypes and WhatsApps. Now, if you go to my website, richieallen.co.uk, you will see there is a story about the WhatsApp. And if you open it, there is a QR code. It's really weird how it works. If you have WhatsApp, WhatsApp on your phone, you go into WhatsApp, you open the camera, you scan it, and it will connect you directly to me so that we're connected so that any time I do a phone-in, if you want to send me a message during the phone-in or ring me during the phone-in. But please be cognizant of this. The WhatsApp will never be monitored outside of the phone-in shows because there are plenty of ways to contact me and um, that's, that's the answer to that, right? Okay. Thanks again to Whitley Streber. Thank you for listening. Until tomorrow. It's uh, bye from the BBG. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Take care of yourselves and one another. Bye now.